0: Hello, and welcome to the D.C. Insider Employer Update podcast. This podcast provides updates based on the expertise and insights from the attorneys at the Washington, D.C.-based law firm, Fortney Scott, and their guests. This podcast will provide an analysis of significant federal developments affecting the workplace that employers need to understand and is for informational purposes only and does not provide legal advice. Now, let's turn it over to our hosts. Bert Fishman.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of DC Insider Employer Update. I'm Bert Fishman, and I'll be sitting in for David Fortney today, but I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues, Nita Beecher. Hi, Nita.
2: Hi, Bert. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. And Leslie Silverman. Hi there, Leslie.
3: Hey, Bert. Hey, Nita.
1: Now, Nita and Leslie just happen to be among the most knowledgeable thinkers on our topic today, the changing role of diversity, equity, and inclusion Programs, DEI programs for employers. We've addressed this general topic before, but today we want to update everyone on the new challenges facing corporate DEI programs in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision last year banning the explicit use of race in admissions in higher education. That's the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and UNC, the Harvard case. Although the decision did not directly focus on businesses or even on DEI programs, it changed the legal landscape and it has spurred a series of challenges to corporate DEI programs. As background, it is important to recognize that the Supreme Court's decision did not change the law, but it changed how corporate DEI programs were perceived and thus how they operate. So, to keep everyone up to date, we are going to provide an overview of how the EEOC is responding to the multiple challenges to the legality of DEI programs, then update everyone on the latest assaults on corporate DEI programs and how those corporations are responding. And finally, we'll try to give you some advice on how companies can steer their way through this legal thicket. So, let's begin. Leslie, in earlier webinars and podcasts, we have discussed the initial response from EEOC Chair Charlotte Burroughs and from Commissioner Andrea Lucas to the Supreme Court's decision and its likely impact on DEI programs. Now, Leslie, you served previously as an EEOC commissioner and as vice chair to the EEOC, so you're the best person I know to tell us how the EEOC is responding to the assault against DEI and what it means for corporation DEI programs. And just for starters, what's all this about a tweet war at the EEOC?
3: Well, I can tell you that when I was at the EEOC, there were no tweet wars, and I'm very thankful for that. But I'm also thankful now that I try to keep tabs on the EEOC that there is X or Twitter or whatever we're calling it these days. And and that's because What happened last week or so was that Mavericks owner and former Shark Tank host Mark Cuban had made a tweet in support of DEI on Twitter, or X. In response to anti-DEI pushback from Elon Musk, Mark Cuban stated that while he did not not make hiring decisions solely based on race or gender, he did take race and gender into account. And as a result of that, EEOC Commissioner Andrea Lucas jumped in and she told Mark Cuban that he was violating Title VII. In fact, I think she said he was dead wrong at one point by taking race and gender into account in any way. She made the point that they cannot be a motivating factor, a plus factor or a tipping point, And that's important for employers to understand the ground rules. The issue is what is okay under Title VII? And I can't say that Andrea was wrong exactly. But her tweets prompted a response from all three Democratic commissioners about this. And I would point out Vice Chair Jocelyn Samuels reiterated Cuban's point that DEI is lawful and good for business. And EEOC's newest commissioner, Kalpana Kotogal, tweeted about how DEI efforts are properly implemented When DEI efforts are properly implemented, they make companies more creative and better able to serve customers and clients.
2: We know this issue around what is the legal standard for Title VII. Generally, when we look at Title VII, we think of final decisions like hiring, promotions, terminations. But the Supreme Court is looking at a case that has already heard oral argument this year, Muldrow versus the city of St. Louis which would expand Title VII beyond just these final employment decisions to things like transfers, laterals, and things where there isn't actually a monetary impact. They don't lose money or they don't get terminated and so forth, which I think around DE&I could get very tricky for employers, don't you think, Leslie? I
3: absolutely think so. It's interesting because I think EEOC has always seen it that way, although I can't say they had saw all the implications it's going to have on DEI when the Supreme Court does do this.
1: Well, clearly, businesses are going to need some kind of official assistance and more help in dealing with these issues. Leslie, is the EEOC likely to clarify how corporations should approach DEI?
3: that is the million-dollar question. I think the Commission would very much like to jump in here and provide employers some meaningful help on how to navigate DEI during this increasingly perilous time. But the fact is, if it puts regulatory or even subregulatory guidance out there, it's very likely to be subject to legal challenge. The fact is the EEOC does have some very long-standing guidelines and guidance on voluntary affirmative action which are fairly employer-friendly and not as onerous as one might think. The EEOC guidance relies on the principles of the Supreme Court decisions in Weber and Johnson, as in it must serve a remedial purpose, be temporary, narrowly tailored to the companies, justified by a reasonable basis. But as I said, this guidance is really old, in fact, so old that it could qualify for ADEA protection. And ideally, the agency would like to update it. But if they create a new guidance or they revise that guidance, they could lose the ground on what they have. So I don't think they are going to do anything, but we may see additional guidance in the way we have in the recent past where commissioners find a way to let you know what they're thinking about these things.
1: Well, I hope that works for corporations because the Supreme Court decision gave rise to ongoing attacks on DE&I. Two of the most prominent anti-DEI warriors are Stephen Miller, the former aide to President Trump, and Edward Blum, who brought and won the Harvard case? Uh, Nita, what is the latest on the legal challenges to DEI from just these two? Let's start with Mr. Miller.
2: Well, it's really interesting, Bert and Leslie. I know you've got some thoughts on this as well. Stephen Miller has a group called America First Legal. They have filed 31 complaints with the EEOC that, alleging that. These woke corporations are in the process of illegally violating Title VII, and they're all over the place. It's They've got outreach for various minority groups. They've got women's programs and so forth, depending on what Stephen Miller's group found, either in 10Qs and 10Ks or other statements by the employers and the CEOs. But I think the most interesting thing recently, and I know, Leslie, we're going to talk about this more in a minute, in December, Miller has said that he launched an investigation of EEOC by filing a FOIA, that's a Freedom of Information Act request, to obtain all the communications and records related to EEOC's efforts to enforce Title VII against corporations based on their de programs. And his view is that all these DEI programs discriminate against whites and males. He cited the newest commissioner, as we just talked about, Codegal's statement that the EEOC is continuing to find ways of nodding, this is his words nodding to illegal DEI programs, and that they are brushing off the Supreme Court's message about individual equality without regard to race, color, sex, ethnicity, and so forth.
1: That's fascinating. Leslie, what is your take on what Mr. Miller is trying to accomplish by filing these complaints? And can you tell us how they differ from commissioner's charges, which are also being reported every day?
3: So Stephen Miller's organization, American First Legal, is filing what they're calling civil rights complaints. And they're seeking to get the commission to investigate these corporations, And they really are picking corporations and companies at specific times and for specific reasons. Like I noticed they did Macy's right before the parade time at Thanksgiving. We've seen NFL, NASCAR and others for their various DEI programs, which AFL claims discriminates against whites and males. What they do with these civil rights complaints, instead of filing an individual charge, which requires an actual charging party with the EEOC and may or may not get a lot of attention, the civil rights complaints, which are really just a made-up term, are aimed at trying to get a commissioner to file what is called a commissioner's charge. And a commissioner's charge is the means by which the commission can initiate its own investigation. It has its authority under several statutes, including Title VII. And they can be initiated in several ways, but that includes that any single commissioner can decide on their own to initiate a charge and send it to a district office for investigation. Now, the commissioner charges generally have a little bit more of a gravitas than other charges, they get more attention. And that's different than regular EEOC charges. It should be noted that in the past three years, commissioner charges dramatically increased when only three commissioner charges were filed in 21 and 2020, which of course was partly due to COVID. But in the last two years, the number dramatically increased. In fact, 29 commissioner charges were filed in 2022 and 35 in fiscal year 2023, which ended on September 30th. And while commissioner charges are subject to confidentiality requirements, here's what we do know about these charges, thanks to publicly filed EEOC reports. Commissioner Andrea Lucas, the one who tweeted back with Mark Cuban, filed 12 commissioner charges in 2022 and 15 in 2023. We're still waiting for a little bit more specificity, the reports be filed in 2023. But we do know that in 2022, among the issues EEOC investigating based on commissioner charges includes recruiting workers based on sex, race, and ethnicity, as well as failure to hire on the basis of race and national origin. And it doesn't take much to know where those charges came from that they're looking at.
1: That certainly does change the focus of what companies are doing and what the EEOC is doing. But Nita, what about Mr. Blum? We've discussed how Blum pivoted after the Supreme Court decision to use the post-Civil War 1866 law called Section 1981 to sue law firms over their internships and scholarships. What's Blum up to now?
2: Well, it's really interesting because after he sued, I want to say there were six or seven major law firms over various types of internships and scholarships that were focused on minority employees, primarily minority students, to be honest. Most of those law firms changed the eligibility based on these lawsuits. I think there might be one still pending. But at that point, Blum said he felt like he had made the point he wanted to make, and so his American Alliance of Equal Rights is not going to continue to go after law firms. However, they are going after other things. One, his Students for Fair Admissions group, the SFFA group, had gone to the Supreme Court within the last two or three weeks to try and stop West Point from using race as part of their admissions. The Supreme Court initially has refused to block that, but that doesn't mean this is over. In addition, his American Alliance of Equal Rights Group is suing nonprofits like the Fearless Fund, which supplies startup funds for Black women entrepreneurs. And I think he's very likely to be successful in saying that they cannot provide these funds just to Black women based on the way that it's set up, as they're in the 11th Circuit right now. They also have filed another lawsuit against a nonprofit in Texas, which provides grants to women and people of color, again, alleging Section 1981.
1: Well, this does seem to implicate some First Amendment issues, and the court will have to work its way through that. But, Leslie, let's move beyond the attacks on companies and focus on some responses. How are corporations responding to these challenges to their DEI program?
3: Bart, you know, companies that have a deep commitment to DEI and that have been using DEI programs and through the years, they are remaining committed. And they are companies like many of our clients. And what they're doing is they're just taking the time to go through and examine every aspect of their program and quietly retooling their programs based on the risks and the new risks as they come up. I mean, because this is a changing field every day. So first, what we saw were those groups going after more of what we would now consider six months into the real battle to be the low hanging fruit here. And those are race restricted access to scholarships and internships. And now we're seeing an increased scrutiny on DEI related hiring practices and recruitment practices, but we're really seeing things like As you know, the Rooney rule being attacked and diversity slates. And we're seeing more of those both in the charges from Stephen Miller and in comments from Andrea Lucas and possibly behind the scenes at a commissioner's charge at EEOC. I think the next place we're seeing also is concerns over tying compensation to diversity results and metrics. So, what our clients and many others are doing is they're conducting audits of their DEI programs and they're using those to determine the risks and to decide what to do.
2: You know, Leslie, one thing I wanted to point out is after the George Floyd murder, many employers went pretty aggressive to try to increase the number of African-Americans, in particular in management and in higher levels of management. And many people did what were known as civil rights. They did civil rights audits. Now they have to look at those audits and the things, the action they took out of those audits and determine if those are going to get them into trouble. So they really need to do a privileged audit. And I know Fortney Scott, along with a lot of other firms, are providing that privileged recommendations to these corporations.
1: So true. You know, most corporations act in their own self-interest. And I'm wondering, Nita, beyond their good intentions, is there any data that a corporate executive can rely on to support his company's involvement in DEI programs in the face of these assaults from not only Miller and Blum but from shareholders and other private interest uh, groups.
2: What we're seeing is there are a number of studies out there that show that those companies that do have to work on their diversity, have good diversity, have better outcomes. There's a woman who was at Northwestern, a business professor who showed that diverse groups are more difficult. So if you have a group because they think, not everybody has group think, they don't think the same way, but the results are better because you're coming from lots of different angles. And I think that's really what employers are looking at, how to get the best out of their employees. And the other thing to keep in mind is the other reason there's a lot of support for diversity is the youngest generation wants to know what your diversity looks like before they go to work for you. And I think that's also very much what they're looking at. While there is strong support for diversity, we are seeing sort of a weakening, lesser, people are starting to get nervous, cuts backs are coming. But I think all in all, major companies still see diversity and inclusion in particular as very important to their long-term growth as an organization.
1: Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating topic and a stimulating discussion, to say the least. But we are now uh, coming to the end of our time. So I'd like to move on to the next step, and that is to get your sense of recommendations of what companies, what corporations can do to confront these assaults on DEI programs and, if they're interested, to keep their DEI programs alive and well. Nita, why don't you start us off?
2: Well, I think it's really important, Bert, to recognize what Leslie made the point of is that these attacks on DEI started with what we call the low hanging fruit, you know, diversity scholarships and the supplier diversity and so forth. They're now moving into the heart of what are many organizations' DEI programs. So it's very important, I think, that they do a privileged audit of all of their DEI programs and make sure they know where risk is and make an assessment of what they want to go forward to it's okay to take the risk as long as you know what it is and i know here at fortney scott we have done a lot of work with clients and other law firms are as well
1: leslie you have a final recommendation
2: well i think this is a case where we're not going to see
3: eeoc provide any meaningful guidance to employers and even if they did things are changing so fast i don't know how useful it would be but the fact is the opponents of DEI are fairly vocal and we are watching and we are watching what the courts do and we will continue to advise our clients. So it's not a one and done thing for any employer. They have to keep looking out there, but they can still do their DEI
1: programs. I guess my final word is that companies should do a DEI a variation of a trust, but verify. Stay the course, but be mindful of the legal and social imperatives. Exactly. Well, I want to thank Leslie and Nita for a terrific discussion. Thank you both for joining us for this podcast. And I want to thank everybody who's listening for joining us this afternoon. I hope you will all subscribe to tune into future podcasts. That's DC Insider employer update on just about any podcast source around Spotify, Google, Apple, whatever. We look forward to having you join us again. And thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the D.C. Insider Employer Update, the podcast that provides analysis of significant federal developments affecting the workplace that employers need to understand. You can subscribe to the D.C. Insider Employer Update podcast wherever you get your podcasts, which includes Apple, Spotify and Google. Additional information about our podcast is located on the Fortney Scott website at fortneyscott.com. Thanks again for listening to the DC Insider Employer Update.